we are in the book of First Samuel. We are just calling this Prophets and Kings. It's a way for us to explore the Samuels, the Kings, and the Chronicles, uh, just these books that deal with the prophets and the kings of Israel. Um, I'm excited for this. This has been a fun series so far. We're at chapter 16 today, and here's why I'm so excited. For the first time, we are now introduced to King David. Uh, so far, it's been really a story of Samuel, the prophet, who anointed Saul the king. It was the king that people wanted. As we saw, there were some highlights, like little glimpses of Saul's life. We go, maybe he's a spiritual guy, maybe he's getting it. But for the most part, he got it wrong. He, as a king, made sacrifices. He participated in a priestly duty. God is like, you know you cannot do that. In chapter 13, he's told right away, like, you will no longer be king. You're, you're, basically, your heritage will not be the king. He's still functioning as the king, but he knows the kingdom's taken from him. Last two weeks ago, in chapter 15, we saw the same thing happen. We saw him disobey God. He didn't fully obey God and what God asked him to do. And so the kingdom's be taken from him. And this brings us to chapter 16, where now we see David. And really in this book, we're going to see a lot of comparing and contrasting. We see comparing and contrasting between Samuel and Eli, between Samuel and Saul, and now Saul and David. It's almost like this is the king you wanted, here's how he failed you, but then God is saying, here's David, here's the king I have chosen. There's a lot we can learn from both of them. Saul maybe is more of a picture of that like fleshly, I'm going to do what I want, I'm going to give into my desires, my needs kind of person. David's more bent towards being spiritual, but at the same time, you're going to see David has his own flaws. But there's almost this idea, though, of like, here's the king I have, here's the king I want for the people. Uh, David fascinates me. I mean, I know you've heard a lot about David. Um, this is the first time the name David is mentioned, so David just means beloved. This is David being introduced for the first time. He is loved. He's loved by the people. They sing songs about him. He's loved by Saul's daughter, Michael. He ends up marrying Saul's daughter. He's loved by Saul's son, Jonathan. He's just a lovable dude. People love him. Uh, he's the number one person talked about in the Bible outside of Jesus. Uh, there are 66 chapters that talk about David, over a thousand references to his name. He's a very important Old Testament figure, obviously. You know, Jesus is not called the son of Moses or the son of Abraham. He's called the son of David. So he's very significant. He's very important. I mean, he is basically the king. Like you could say he's the first king. He's not. He's the second. But he's like the king God has wanted for his people. And even then, we're going to see he's like very multifaceted. He makes a lot of mistakes along the way. He gets a lot of things right along the way. But this is a man that is in pursuit of the heart of God. And this is why he is God's king. This is why the people love him. He's just a man for God's heart. He's very interesting. He's an author, a writer, a poet, a shepherd, a warrior, a king, a son, a dad. There's so many different ways we're going to look at his life. And so here in chapter 16, this is kind of like the start of that. And I'm excited to just jump into the life of David, and we will be talking about David for a while, all right? Um, and also towards the end of 1 Samuel, it kind of goes back to Saul, back to David. Again, it does this kind of, in some ways, there's a compare and contrast, a guy who's getting it right versus a guy who's getting it wrong. And ultimately, here's what we see. I think when we read the, these Old Testament stories, there is a temptation to be like, even as a kid growing up, like, I want to be like David. I want to slay the Goliaths in my world. And, and there's some beautiful truth to that. There's, some, there's a lot of um, things we can learn from David's life. But ultimately, David is not so much a picture of us, but a picture of Jesus. He's ultimately the one who represents, in a, in a profound way, the one who defeats death, you could say. The one who defeats the Goliaths. He's the shepherd king, the one from Bethlehem. He's the anointed, uh, spirit-filled king. In so many ways, he's that king that we've all been looking for. The whole idea of Samuel saying, you want a king, I gave you the king you wanted, he failed you. Now let me show you the king I want for you. And this is just a small taste of the son of David, the one who will come who will be the greater than David, who will ultimately fulfill everything you need in a king or in a person, or in this idea of like, we want this utopia, we want this kingdom. Well, you'll not even have that with David, but you get maybe a taste for a moment of what it would be like to actually have a king who, who's basically living a life that is worth living. So, we're going to study him. We're going to look at him. Uh, we're in chapter 16. We'll go through that. But why don't we pray? Because there's a lot here. We're not going to read it yet. We're just going to pray and invite the Lord to speak today. Cool? Yes? All right, let's do that. Father, we are so thankful that you speak, that you are a God who speaks, that you have spoken to us through your word, through your son Jesus, and you still speak to us today through your word and your Holy Spirit. And God, I just ask that um, this would be just so much more 
than a Bible study, where we learn information, where we learn a story. Um, Jesus, we ask that your word would shape us, would form us, that Christ would be formed in us, that God, that you would just remind us of who you are, of what you're doing, of God, this, this longing in our heart for a king who will satisfy the needs of our lives. God, we just look to you. We need you. We ask that you bring clarity where maybe there's a lack of clarity. God, we just ask that um, just everyone here today, that they would sense your spirit is with them, speaking to them personally. God, that you still move in the hearts of men and women. That your spirit still does fall on individuals. And Jesus, we ask that you do that just by your, by your spirit, by your grace. In your wonderful name, amen. The title today is Ordinary People, Extraordinary God. Uh, as a parent, there are times where it's very difficult to communicate this truth to our kids, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that like God has his hand on you, that you are beautiful, that there is purpose and design to your life. At the same time, as you speak over them, for them not to kind of get filled with this pride or to think, I am special. I am different than anybody and everybody else. I am pretty extraordinary. It's really weird how you want to speak life into them, but you see within like the heart kind of grow into this like, yes, I am everything you say I am. You know, and I find this difficult. One of the best things to help illustrate this truth, and I'm going to use a terrible illustration, but it's okay. Um, if you're a parent, you'll get this. And if you're going to be a parent one day, you'll get this too. But there is a kid's TV show called Bluey, and it is the best. All right, I am going to truly promote this. Bluey is like my wife and I's favorite show. It's an incredible show. If you see this image, the dad, the big blue one, is Bandit. The wife, the orange one, the taller one, is Chili. Her name's Chili. And then you have the little one, the little orange one, Bingo, and then Bluey. All right? It's a great family. This is like the new Carl Winslow, Danny Tanner, Uncle Phil. I don't know. This is like, Bandit to me is my hero as a dad. It truly is. Um, I like watched episodes, I go, I fail. Like parents, do you not, parents who watch this, do you not agree? Like Bandit's an amazing dad. Parents, where you at? Can you give some love for Bandit? He's not an amazing dad. All right. You're like, no. Okay, if you're going to be a parent one day, you're going to learn. Like, this is the go-to show. And it's funny, my wife and I joke because we probably now, like, our kids have gone to bed and we've watched a couple episodes while they're in bed. Um, it's that good. I mean, it's just, they're eight-minute shows, and you'll, like, I, there's an episode called Granddad, My Wife Cries Every Time. It's just, a, it's just powerful, all right? They're so good. There's so many good lessons here. He really is, like, a role model. That's so sad. This blue dog is my role model, but it's true. Uh, Bandit. But there's an episode of Bluey where uh, Bluey's cousin, I can't believe I'm doing this, but share. Bluey's cousin Muffin's coming over, and as the Muffin is driving the car, Muffin's dad says, Muffin, you are so special. You are the most special child in the world. And Muffin goes, I am? And then the whole episode is essentially Muffin going to play with Bluey and Bingo, and Muffin is doing it their own way. Muffin can't get along. Muffin is basically like, I'm special. You serve me. You play the way I want to play. Bluey goes and tells Muffin's dad, and Muffin's dad pulls Muffin aside and says, Muffin, remember, this is what I'm going to quote it. Muffin, do you remember how I told you the most special dog in the world? Yes. Well, you're not. <laughs> he literally says, you get only to me and your mom, and you're not the most special. And she goes, oh. And then she just goes back to playing nice. End of episode. It was amazing. My wife and I were just like laughing so hard because as a parent, you get it. As a parent, maybe you're trying to speak life and be like, you're extraordinary, you're special. And your kid's like, I am. And then it ruins relationships. Like it feeds into the narcissistic little creature we have in all of us. And it grows. And it's really interesting. And if you are American, maybe you're struggling with this. Like if you're more American than you are Christian, sometimes we struggle with this. Like, no, we want to speak life into each other. But at the same time, we don't want to create a little monster, right? And it's hard because here's what we see with David. David, in our mind, we look at him as an extraordinary human being. Like he's truly extraordinary. But in reality, here's what 1 Samuel 16 do, is doing. It's saying, this is a pretty ordinary guy, but he has an extraordinary God. So it's not so much like, look at David. David's amazing. It's like, well, look what, look what David became once the Spirit of God fell upon him. Ultimately, anything good, anything extraordinary in David is because of God and by the Spirit of God. There is this idea, though, and I, I think it's something very bizarre. We do, everyone, I think, in some ways, wants to feel like I am different. I am truly like no one's like me in this area or this way. Or maybe I'm the top of my field. Maybe you are that academically or in your career or you make the most money. People want to feel like I am truly special. And what happens oftentimes is if you kind of play into that, you become like a Saul. Saul was also incredibly special. And we're going to see Saul was head and shoulders, the most handsome person, the king. Like Saul was different. But he also played into that, and it led to his downfall. David's kind of introduced as this ordinary young shepherd boy, but he becomes extraordinary, and it's still not David. It's, it's Christ in him. It's the Spirit of God in him. 
That's what makes him unique and different. And so I'm kind of presenting it this way because as we study the life of David, you see that he's an ordinary man, but he has an extraordinary God, and he gets that. It's not so much about David, it's about Jesus in him and what he's a picture of. And so as we walk through First uh, uh, Samuel 16 today, um, again, there's a little bit of comparing and contrasting David's intro to Samuel's intro, so we kind of got to go back a little bit. There's a little bit also kind of future kind of things it, written in here that we kind of see played out later, and we really introduce into a, a healthy good king that the people long for. So here's kind of the, the way we're going to break this text down today, how we're going to look at it. We're going to see a king from Bethlehem, a shepherd king, a spirit-filled anointed king, and a worshiper warrior king. This is how David is introduced to us. He is this king from Bethlehem. He's filled with the spirit. He's anointed. He's a shepherd. He's described as a warrior at the end, and he's described as a worshiper. All right, and so obviously when we read this, what king is a shepherd? What king is a warrior? What king came to do the will of God and be a worshiper? We have King Jesus. I mean, this king from Bethlehem. So I want us to kind of see how he's introduced to us. So let's, let's read. It's 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Uh, let's pick up there, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, so he's speaking to Samuel, the prophet, the name of this book. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for my, listen, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Very interesting wording. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And Samuel said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. All right, the story picks up where it ended in chapter 15. If you remember how it ended in 15, uh, Saul, the king, did not obey God. He was supposed to wipe out king, the king of uh, Amalek. And so Samuel goes, I'm going to have to do what you wouldn't do. And he chops him to pieces. It's a crazy story. I let Nate deal with that two weeks ago. He made fun of me for it. It's okay. So that's two weeks ago. Uh, it ends there. It ends with basically Saul being rejected as king. It ends with Samuel having to do his, his work, his job. Saul, uh, Samuel, the prophet, is in deep distress. He's like, Saul wasn't who he's supposed to be. It starts off, chapter 16, verse 1, he's just grieving. This word grieve, if you look at verse 1, it literally means as mourning for the dead. He is so grieved by King Saul not being who he hoped he would be, not living up to and fulfilling what he wanted to be. It's almost as if Saul's dead, and he's grieving. He's heartbroken. Actually, in chapter 15, verse 11, if you remember, it says that Samuel, the prophet, he wept, he wept all night in tears. He had a night just of crying. He's heartbroken. He's still heartbroken. He can't believe it. I anointed Saul. I mean, this was, it's almost like Obi-Wan Kenobi to Anakin. Like, you are the chosen one. Like, that's how he felt. He's like, you were supposed to be the guy. Sorry for all these weird references today. Um, but it's like, you are supposed to be the guy. Actually, it's in First uh, Samuel chapter 2. If you remember, um, Samuel's mom, Hannah, actually sung a song about the king to come and described, like, his character. And I really do think that it's almost as if Samuel has in his mind what his mom sung about the king like this hope of what the king would be. I'll just throw a few verses up here so you can see it. In chapter two, she says, uh, do not keep talking so proudly. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. It is not by strength that one prevails. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. He'll give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. It's almost like, man, in this song, we see this idea of, man, God is gonna bring low the exalted. He's gonna exalt the low. He's gonna be a, peop, a person of righteousness. He, God's gonna anoint and set apart this king for his work his purposes, and now here he is, and Saul has failed epically. I mean, right away, chapter 13, chapter 15, he's disqualified from being king. He's still on the throne as king, acting as king, but the king, in a sense, his kingdom, his future kingdom, it's done. And there's this, this great grief that Samuel has. He's just broken over this. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but there, there is something about this, because it's interesting how God approaches Samuel. Only the Lord could do this. He's like, why are you still grieving? He's like, it's time to move on. Now, if someone's grieving, I do not recommend they be like, stop grieving, all right? The Bible tells us to grieve with those who grieve, to weep with those who weep. Like, there's something about that. But it really is interesting how the Lord's like, you are missing out on the present because of this past pain. Okay, the length is enough. 
Like, I'm a God who's at work, and you need to move on. If you've experienced maybe the suffering of a, of a leader, a leader who's failed, or maybe some sort of grieving in that kind of a way, that's what Saul is experiencing. God's like, you've grieved enough. I'm still raising up men and women. It's time to stop grieving. It's time to get to work. I'm a God who's on the move. Do you want to join me on the move? And I just think there's something about the Lord in his way, in his timing, maybe speaking over to one or two, but I think some of us do grieve, and God's like, okay, it's appropriate to grieve, but it's, it's time to go. It's time to get to work. Like, I think that's what's happening here. Like, it's, it's all right. Let's go. I have a king set up aside. He's in Bethlehem, one of the sons of Jesse. Like, it's time to get to work. I just think in some ways, as I was reading this text, and kind of praying and trying to go, Lord, this is not just a Bible study. What is it we want to do and say? Maybe the Lord is speaking to a few people just like, hey, you, you've grieved. It's time to get back to work with God. Like, let's go. It's time to see that God's on the move. And let's, let's join him on this move. And so he's speaking and says, all right, you've grieved enough. It's time to go. It's time to move on. Listen to how he says it in verse one, actually. He says, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. This is so different than King Saul. I have provided for myself a king. It is interesting. It's written like, from Bethlehem, a king myself. It's really interesting how you can read it like a son. From Bethlehem, a son myself. There's this idea, I do believe, it's also like this foresight, obviously, to the king who will come from Bethlehem, God himself. But there's this idea of, do you not see what I'm doing? But there's going to be a king that comes and go to Jesse. He's going to be one of the sons of Jesse. It's a king I have set apart myself. This word for provided, I'll put this kind of explanation up here. This is word ra'ah. It also means see or look. It's repeated seven times in this chapter. As chosen, saw, look, look, uh, look and looks, find and seen. God says, I've seen one of his sons, for God sees the heart. In chapter 8, verse 5, the people asked Samuel to anoint a king for us. Samuel refers to him as your king, your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. Now God says, I have provided for myself a king. You've had your king, a king you chose. Now I'm going to provide for myself a king. This is going to be a king who's after my heart. He's my guy. He's, he's my man. He's the one I have in mind for you. He's a Bethlehemite. And again, this is the idea. When I'm, I just think the first few verses, it's really interesting. He's basically saying, hey, there's a king from the sons of Jesse. He's from Bethlehem. Bethlehem obviously being kind of like an obscure small town from the tribe of Judah, not a really well-known area or like a prominent area or wealthy area is known for shepherding. Obviously, this would be leading to ultimately how Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says it this way, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, uh, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So right here in 1 Samuel 16, we're introduced to the idea that, hey, 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 this king from Bethlehem, from the son of Jesse, there will be another king that will also come from the offshoot of Jesse. There will also be another king who comes from Bethlehem, and this will be the savior king, the Messiah king. This is the true anointed one, the true king you're longing for. Yes, David in many ways is that. He's a king for myself, but right away we're introduced about a king from Bethlehem. You guys follow me? Obviously, this is so clearly introduced and repeated in Micah and then repeated in the book of Matthew chapter 2 about how Jesus would come from Bethlehem, this obscure area. And right away, God's showing this. I, I, I don't choose what you normally choose. I don't do things the way you normally do things. I choose the obscure things. I choose the things that don't make sense. Bethlehem from this tribe, this small little town, I'm, I'm choosing that. That's where I'm picking from. This small little clan, this small little area, that's where I'm pulling from. Now, if you notice, by the way, I just kind of got to point this out. Verse 1 through 5, he's like, uh, Samuel goes, but you know that Saul's going to kill me, right? Like, he's like, why are you going to Bethlehem? What are you doing? And he's like, no, no. God says, say that you're going to offer sacrifice, and you are. Some people read this and go, oh, is God encouraging him to lie? No, because he's going to sacrifice. And actually, I think it's almost like Samuel interrupts God. Like, if you read verse 2, it's almost like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He, like, freaks out. And God's like, no, do you not get this? Like, when you're about to anoint someone to be king, you're going to do this anyways. You're going to offer a sacrifice anyways. The point is more spiritual worship. The point is more making that sacrifice. And after that, like, you're going to do the whole king thing. But he, that, this is like the, the guy. It's like, oh, what's happening here? So here's what we see, essentially. God's like, you're going to be wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove. This is how you're going to approach the situation. So we see a shepherd king from Bethlehem. Number two is this. We see a shepherd king. He's a shepherd king. This is how he's introduced to us. Let's read verse six. Verse six says, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely... Surely the Lord anointed, uh, the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. 
man looks on at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made his other son, Shema, pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, "Uh, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. We will not sit down until he comes here. All right, so here's, this is like a classic story. This is so interesting. This is like a Cinderella kind of for David. It's so, right? It's so interesting. Like, bring your sons to me. We're going to offer sacrifice, consecrate yourselves. This is a holy, special moment. All right, and it's basically, let him know, like, something's going to happen with one of your sons. And he sees all seven sons. And he's like, the king's not here. Do you have any more sons? Actually, even the word kind of implies servants. Is there something I'm not seeing? Like, is there someone not here? And it's like, what am I missing? He's like, well, there's one more, the youngest, David, it is mind-blowing that he has another son, and he's not even invited to this consecration kind of moment, right? Like, even the father himself is like, but you couldn't mean surely not David. Obviously, that says something about maybe David or his ordinariness or really his occupation, just who he is. He's the youngest. We'll kind of get into that word. But this is like really interesting to dad himself. You know, it's funny because I think David later remembers this. In Psalm 27, David wrote, if my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will not forsake me. There's something about David that's like, even when my, my dad didn't see it, the Lord will not forsake me. I love how Alan Redpath, a pastor, puts this. He says, you may not be intellectual or well thought of in your family circle. You may be despised by others for your faith in Christ. Perhaps you only had a little share in the love of your parents, as David did. But remember that those who are rejected of men often become beloved of the Lord. You know, there is something about that. Hey, I don't know what you experienced or how your family viewed you. This might be nothing, but maybe it's not nothing. I mean, whose feelings, let's be honest, whose feelings would not be hurt in this moment? Like, there's like there might be a king amongst your family, and it's like, but you're not going to be invited to the ceremony. Like, obviously, you'd be shattered by that. Obviously, that reflects something there. And there's just something about David going, but the Lord sees. I mean, that is kind of the point of even this section. The Lord sees. The Lord sees the heart. The Lord sees. And so here's why I love what's introduced. Uh, he, the first son, Eliab, stands before Samuel, stands before Jesse's dad. And he even, even Samuel fell into the trap. Look at him. Surely, he says in verse 6, he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He even fell for the trap again of maybe it's by his appearance. Isn't that crazy? Verse 6. It's like we just saw the same issue in King Saul. Like this, Saul was chosen based off this criteria. Actually, in chapter 9, verse 2, here's the verse. I'll put it up here. It says, there is not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, than Saul. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Like, what made Saul Saul was, you are more, the most handsome man in Israel. You're taller than everyone. That means you're fierce. You're ready for battle. You'll be a great king on the, on the war field. Like, you're going to be a great representation of that. And it's almost as if, here's Samuel falling into the same trap again. Surely this must be the Lord's anointed. It is crazy how so often we still make the same mistake in the church and just in life that we can judge a book, in a sense, by its cover. We can say, but look it. They have everything going for them outwardly. And yet inwardly, God's like, mm, it's not there. It's not there. Verse 7 is one of the most well-known, probably Old Testament verses. It's one of the most powerful, I think, truths we see. That man might look at the outward appearance, but the Lord sees the heart. And it's introduced saying, don't make the same mistake twice. Saul, maybe now Eliab. Again, here's the idea. There's nothing wrong with being handsome. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with being beautiful. We're actually going to see that David was. But here's what's interesting. I think so often we put the emphasis on the wrong things. Maybe we miss it. Like the idea is this. How often, if we just ask South Floridians, how often do we spend working maybe on the outward person compared to working on the inward person? Like when it comes to time, energy, money, just friendship, like how much time do we spend actually like working on the inner person? Being, like we have like, I, I laugh sometimes, like there's such a strong like CrossFit community when they're like, oh, they're CrossFitters. Like almost like a biker gang. You're like, ugh, well, it's scary sometimes, but it's cool. Like there's such a strong community there and they're working and together for like the, the growth and development of, of themselves. Do we have that same kind of community for the inward man? Do we have that same kind of like, no, that this community is meeting for the sake of, I want to be a better follower of Jesus, dad, friend, husband. Like, I want, I want to grow in this way. Do we put the same time of energy and money as we do into the outward person? So often, I think we'll spend more time and money on the outward man than even the inward man. And I think the Lord's like, gosh, 
I care about the heart. Hey, you know, what does it say in 1 Timothy 4? Bodily exercise does profit. It profits a little, but godliness all things. Like, there is something, okay, that's great, but I'm looking at, I'm looking for the heart. Don't make this a mistake twice. When God said earlier, I'm looking for a man after my heart, obviously, he finds it in David. God said about Saul, I'm looking for a man after my heart, and then here's David. Here's this man after the heart of God. Listen, God greatly cares about our inward person. We know this verse, but let me just read it and bring it up to our mind again. Proverbs 4 says, keep your heart with all, dil- with all diligence or vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Saying, we will fight and try to keep our mental health, our physical health, all these other things, but do you keep your heart with all diligence? Vil- vil- do, you, do you keep it with all, I can't even say it, vigilance, sorry. But do you keep it that way? Do you fight for it? Do you work on it? Do you invite people into it? Speak into it. Speak over it. Where's my heart? God, where's my heart going astray? Here's what I'll ask. Like, is your heart right now currently going astray? Like, is there something where you go, my heart is not in pursuit of God. It's in pursuit of something else. Fight. Keep your heart in that way. Like, fight for it. Get people to say, I see that your desires are going away from the Lord. I love you. I care for you. Let's fight for this together. There's a sense where we spend so much time on the outward man, and God is like, can you please, like, spend as much time on the inward man? What if we just matched it? Every 45 minutes you work out, you have 45 minutes of time with God. Like, what if there's some sort of like, we're going we're gonna to try to match this here. Every hour and a half you spend shopping, looking at that word man, buying whatever. I'm going to spend that same amount of time working on the inward man. Like, what if we actually even just went one for one? What a, what a change I think we'd see. Let, let me put it this way. I don't think the problems with this world is because there's a lack of creativity. I don't think there's because of the lack of aesthetics. I think the problems in this world is because of the lack of the inward person being developed. Like, the problems we're seeing is not because the outward thing is off. It's because the inward thing is off. So God's like, let's just work on the inward thing. This is what I care about. One author says this, uh, David is a kind of male Cinderella left to his domestic chores instead of being invited to the party. He has been excluded from consideration, but the tending of his flocks to which he had been relegated will turn out to give him exactly what he needs, both in the Goliath battle and later to lead his people. You see what seemed obscure and like outdated, and this will not, like he's a shepherd, by no means it could be him. It's actually the exact thing God uses to make him the leader. The thing you think is like pointless and out there, and there's no point of doing this, it's the exact thing that God is using to making you who he wants you to be. So let me just kind of put this. There's a few words to characterize David's times just in the pasture with the sheep. So I have a few words. Here's the first one. Write, write this down. Please feel free to. The first one is obscurity. Obscurity. Like he's out with the sheep. No one paid attention. He's by himself. I think you could kind of describe like, God, why am I doing this? Have you ever had a job or anything in life? You're like, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Like, I could be doing so many other things, right? And it's usually in the obscurity God does work. And it's not, not in the, I don't want to bring this up in a weird way. I honestly feel like one of those panic attack moments that hit me after I graduated high school, there's so many things I wanted to do and wanted to like pursue. And for a year, I feel like God was like, serve me. And for a year, I was a janitor. And 18, 19 years old, I would work 40 hours a week, and I could see, I could go a whole day and not see a soul. And I don't know how many times, when you're alone like that, man, your, your thoughts can go places. And there's so many times, like, Lord, I could be doing so many other things. And it's like, no, no, but I have you here. Like, Lord, I, I feel like the world's in front of me, and I'm cleaning this urinal again for the thousandth time. It's like, yeah, that's where I have you. There's something about those moments that I feel like if you can actually turn it into worship and not be bitter about it, that God will do amazing things in your heart. I feel like as actually in those moments, not, I feel like I was actually getting filled with self right. Like, look at you, you good person cleaning urinals. God's like, you're a filthy person. Like, it's almost like God was revealing, like, yeah, you think you're good, don't you? It's like, <laughs> like, I don't know. My sin was revealed to a whole new way. My sin was, like, came to the forefront of my mind in a whole different way in those moments because even I wanted to boast in my self righteousness, and God's like, look how disgusting that is that you can't boast in my righteousness, but in your works. And there's just so much happening that season. And I'm saying this God, I think, does his best work in seasons of obscurity where you're like, why am I here? No one even sees. No one even notices. Is that not David in the field? I love how Henry Nouwen puts it. He kind of describes it as solitude, but here's what he says. He says, solitude molds self-righteous people into gentle, forgiving people who are so deeply convinced of their own sinfulness and even more deeply convinced of God's great mercy that their life itself becomes a ministry. It was in this solitude, I believe God developed this gentleness this sense of forgiving. Like, think about what Saul's about to put him through. Think about how Saul's going to put David on the chase, throw spears at him, and yet David was incredibly humble in his response. I think it's in obscurity God works in our character. Don't despise the day of small things. Don't despise those moments of obscurity. You guys following me? This could easily, think about his own dad. Going, oh, I have another one, but he's just with the sheep. 
That's the way how he describes him, with the sheep. But in those moments of obscurity, God made him to his. Also this, monotony. It's the same thing every day. It's the same thing day in, day out. Go to the sheep, make sure a wolf didn't take one, or a lion or something, you know, you're there. Check them out, check them out, make sure there's no ticks or bugs, whatever. Feed them, lead them to still waters. You know, sheep are not cattle, they're not driven. Sheep are led, it's a different approach. All of these monotonous kind of things, as a shepherd would do, we'll probably talk about this more even next week, but just all the things David had to classically do, and what was it doing? Is building repetition in him. It's like, I got to care for these. I got to defend these. I got to look after these. Hey, look, I'm getting really good. I'm so bored out here. I'm playing with my sling. I can hit that apple from 100 yards away. Like, he had to, like, do some things out there. And, like, probably no one cared. It's probably just but the monotonous things over and over again. I think that God does his best work in monotonous moments. Also, lastly, this is just uh, humility. God was working within him this great humility. This idea of just, like, you're among the sheep. This is who you are. The smelly, the outcast. This was maybe, again, this was the occupation that would be reserved for people who are just, like, looked down upon. This might be an occupation that no one respected in any way, not even your own family. And the idea is that God's like, I'm just creating a humble person. And all of these things, ultimately, God is saying, you are now the person I have called to lead my people. All of these things that made no sense, how could this benefit anyone long term? God's like, these are all the right things I need for the making to make you who, to be the shepherd of my people. Actually, here's how it says it. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, listen to this. This is at David's other anointing. David's about to be anointed. He's going to be anointed again and again. He's anointed three times, by the way. So in 2 Samuel 5, 2, this is what God says. God says, you shall be shepherd of my people, Israel. Hey, David, that job of being a shepherd, you thought it was nothing. But you're going to take that same job, the same idea, and now you're going to shepherd my people. You shepherd sheep, now you're going to shepherd people. There is this idea in the Bible of leadership being related to shepherds. Because again, it's like you're going to be with them, among them, smell like them, take care of them. When they bite you or run away or whatever they do, when they headbutt you, it's like you still pursue them, you love them, they're going to go astray, pursue after them. And these are all the things I need in the making of, of just making a good leader. Actually, the problem with Israel later on, we're going to see in their history, is they're supposed to shepherd the flock of God, and yet they didn't. It's in Ezekiel 34, but I just think his characteristics are good. He says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? The idea of this is saying, like, Shepherds, this is the whole point. Take care of your people. David, everything that you have right now that's in the making, this is what I, Saul was not that. He was not okay with the monotony, the humility of the role. He was not okay with doing the things day in, day out. He wanted to be extraordinary. You are doing those ordinary things, and now like you are ready for what I have for you. Obviously, so here he is. Here's a king from Bethlehem. Here's a shepherd king. Who is the king from Bethlehem who's a shepherd king? Obviously, Jesus. Mark describes Jesus in Mark chapter 6. He says, uh, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is the one who comes along the scene and sees Israel and says, Israel, you're still without a shepherd. He's the one where people see and look on and say, wow, this is the true shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. Everything the New Testament says about Jesus, this is the shepherd we've been looking for. In John 10, 11, it says, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. This idea of this kingly shepherd from Bethlehem is reminding us of another kingly shepherd from Bethlehem. The one who says, I, but I am the shepherd that the people really need. I will lay down, I will give it all. And ultimately, the shepherd from Bethlehem is pointing to a greater shepherd from Bethlehem, Jesus. Yes, amen. Here's what's next, though. The third thing, which is profound. He's gonna be spirit-filled and anointed. He is the spirit-filled and anointed king. Let's read verse 12. Verse 12 says, and he sent and brought him uh, in. Now he was ruddy. David was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, here's what's going on. It describes David. So David comes in from the fields and it says he is ruddy. He has light eyes, like he has nice eyes. He's handsome. Now, why the description? Ruddy, ruddy might mean this. It might mean red bearded. Red beard, by the way, red bearded. So don't judge my red beard. All right? It does actually, possibly means red beard. That's true. I literally had a student one time ask me, they go, hey, why is your beard red? I'm like, I don't know. That's the way I am. They're like, do you eat a lot of Cheetos and Doritos and just like wipe them all over your face? I'm like, yes. How did you know? That's exactly what I do. I rub Doritos in my beard and that's why it's like this. That's a real question. Uh, but David was ruddy. It could mean red bearded. It could also mean red complexion. There's different disagreements on this. I'll explain why this might be important. He had light eyes. He was handsome. Why does it describe it? I thought God just said it's not about the looks. It's not about the looks. Why is it described this way? The idea is kind of twofold. One might be this. David's kind of described as like maybe like red-cheeked, lighter eyes, you know, and like handsome, like maybe like a little pop star boy band kind of a person. The idea is like not so much like a king, 
like head and shoulder, like, like, like Saul, head and shoulders, handsome, probably that like, you know, like, I don't know, that like beard and like good, like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like an actor, but I have, Gerard Butler, I don't know, someone, but probably like that fierce kind of a guy. But then you have like, here's like Harry Styles, like, hey, I'm the king. Like, I, was, ah, I don't want this. All right, there it might be that idea. It's describing him in that way because it's like, oh, he just seems too like fair, you know, fair complexion. He seems too sweet. He seems like a little sweet kid. That's one idea. Maybe that's why it's describing it. Or people go, why does it mention looks? I thought looks don't matter. Here's the idea. I think the author and the narrator is being really smart. It's mentioning how he's handsome. There's a lot of people in scripture that are mentioned as beautiful or handsome. Most of the time, almost every single time, there's a downfall with that later. The, the idea of them being handsome or beautiful usually comes with different sort of temptations and struggles, right? The only person that also maybe didn't have that was Joseph. He was incredibly handsome, we're told, but obviously he never gave in, but he still was faithful with a lot of temptations. Moses was described as handsome. I mean, a lot of people were described as handsome, and then usually some came some sort of sexual sin or downfall. The author might be mentioning this to say, hey, yes, he's great, he's God's called, he's God's anointed, but there might be already some cracks. He's also human. We can't cite that David is a human. And this reference to his looks might be a reference to what might happen in the future, which we will see later on. Moving on, though, from that, he goes, this is my anointed one. Obviously, the idea of being anointed with oil, it's not so much the oil. Prophets, priests, kings were anointed with oil for a work. They're set apart. So David is anointed with oil in this way. But the oil was symbolic for God, let your spirit fall on them. And as David's anointed with oil, the spirit of God falls on him. And this is really unique, actually. It says from that day forward, the spirit was with him. This is actually really different than how it describes most of the people who are filled with the spirit. Because Samuel, or uh, sorry, Samson was filled with the spirit three different times. Or you read about different characters like Gideon. They're filled with the spirit at certain points in time. David seems to be really different. David's just filled with the spirit. And and from that day forward, the spirit is with him. Kind of really, basically it's implying there's a really unique relationship that David has with God. That's why when David does sin in Psalm 51, he's like, God, take not your spirit from me. There's a sense of like, I have a unique kind of relationship with God in this moment. Now, here's the thing. From this day forward, I think David, this is what makes David, David. David is not extraordinary. He's an ordinary guy filled with an extraordinary God. The idea to me in this is from this day forward, now he's going to face Goliath and it's going to be a different outcome. Now he's going to be able to run from Saul and have courage and have character and remain faithful. Like now he can face everything he's going to face, not because David himself is so amazing, but because the spirit of God is with him and the spirit of God is amazing. And I think that we got to make sure we understand this. Like I can read about stories of David and be like, wow, David, look at you. We cannot forget that anything good in David is because of God. Anything good you see in someone else is because of God. There is no room for that person to get the credit. There is no room to be like, wow, there's something, I could never be like them. No, you could, because if the same spirit dwells in them, dwells in you, absolutely. And I think sometimes you put people in these categories, like, wait, they're way holier than that. I could never be, like, if I met them, I'd freak out. There's like spiritual giant. In reality, they're an ordinary person filled with an extraordinary God. And you can be too. And this is still available for us today. And there's this emphasis on being, he's filled with the spirit, he's anointed, he's set apart, and he has, God has this work for him. What I actually love about this, we're gonna see in verse 19, David is filled with the Spirit of God. You know what he does? He goes back to shepherding. He goes back to being the sheep. Because you're going to see the king say, bring him from the sheep. Like, bring him back out. I, I love this because some, so often I see people have like these spiritual highs and moments. of like, God did something profound in my life. I need to go. I need to tell everyone. Like, yes, you do. But like, also don't keep, keep doing what you're doing. Like, may, maybe, maybe you just need to be faithful with where you're at. Like, when Jesus was filled with the Spirit in Luke chapter 4, where did he go? The desert. Right? To be tempted. Like his ministry didn't begin right there. It actually 40 days, 40 nights of fasting, being tempted. Then his ministry began. David's filled the spirit. He goes back to being a shepherd. And then he'll be called up to be with Saul in just a moment. But I want you to see, like, if you've had that spiritual, like, God, you filled me. Like, I, I know that you're with me. There's something unique now. Maybe it's just keep in mind it's okay to go back to just what God has called you to do to begin with. Like, it's okay. And we see David, he's filled with the spirit of God. And the whole idea, the whole idea of this is David, from this day forward, there was a guy who did this in his flesh. There's a guy like Saul who wanted to take credit, who had his ideas, his own inventions, but David, you're going to be different. It's the whole, it's what kind of the, the Old Testament summarizes, I believe, in Zechariah 4 about just men of God. God's the Spirit says is rubbable, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. The idea is like from this day forward, you can't take credit. You might have a victory over the Philistines. That's not you. That's my victory. You might lead the people to unity. You might lead the people to worship. You cannot take credit, not by your might, not by your spirit, but by my spirit, but what I'm doing. People are going to praise David and Saul. Hey, Saul killed his thousands. David killed his tens of thousands. And there's going to be that temptation to want to believe that. And there's this reminder right away. No, no, no. It's by my spirit. Don't believe those lies. It's by my spirit. And so he's filled. 
Now, here's why I think this is interesting. In Isaiah chapter 11, we're actually told about a son of Jesse being filled with the Spirit again. So in Isaiah, after David's death, there will be another son of Jesse filled with the Spirit. Again, who is that? Bible school, Sunday school answer. Jesus. And listen to this, Isaiah 11, if you're like, what? Isaiah 11, I thought this was so interesting. Isaiah 11, verse 1, it says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, so from his offspring. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. Who is this offshoot of Jesse that will be filled with the spirit? Who is this one he's speaking of? It's Jesus. There's another shepherd king who's anointed, who's filled with the spirit, and that is Jesus. All of these things were seen again today. If you think I'm overemphasizing it, I don't think I am. All of these things were seen in David is what you're seeing and what you're hoping for is another son of Jesse who's a shepherd, who's filled with the spirit, who's also anointed, and this is King Jesus. Yes, amen. And so when we read these stories, again, there's temptation to be like, I want to be David. Nothing wrong with that. There's a temptation to be like, I want to my life to be like his life. I want to have faith like him. That's great. And you can, but we can't miss the bigger picture that this is speaking of King Jesus. And then lastly, number four is this. We're going to see a worshiper warrior king in David. He's a worshiper, but he's also a warrior. Let's read verse 14. This is where it gets maybe a little weird. So stay with me. Verse 14. So David's filled with the spirit. In contrast, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, comes on David, leaves Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. His ser- the servants are saying this to Saul. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered Saul, and they said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer, David did. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Now, this section brings up a lot of questions. Why would God send a a harmful spirit to torment Saul? What kind of God would do this? Let's just kind of step back and look at this. Saul, David is filled with the Spirit of God. You're my anointed. Saul was called to be the king. He's no longer the king, chapter 13 and 15. The Spirit departs from him. Now a tormenting spirit. People go, why? Why is that? Hard to answer, obviously, for many reasons. Let me speak for God in this way. Like, that's hard to answer. I think the idea of this that we have to see is God, obviously, like he does with Job, he's able to send who and what he wants to send, where and when. So Job. Job, same thing, tempted by Satan himself, Right? He loses his family, his livelihood. Why would God do that to Job? Why would God do this to Saul? There's a part of it where we go, I don't know, when you read the story of Job, God's trying to show Job and teach Job a lot of things. Why is God doing this to Saul? I would say in a similar way, he's trying to teach Saul a lot of things. Let me say this, the tormenting spirit that was sent to Saul was actually used by God to bring David into Saul's life. That is significant. God used this spirit in such a way where like, let's find someone who can help. Who's the person that can help? Ironically, it's David. Saul doesn't know that David's anointed to be king. Like, he's anointed to be king at this point. David's already anointed. He's anointed to be king. The people don't know that. This is not public. But this is like, but who can help? I heard of this guy named David who can help. So God used this tormenting spirit to bring David into Saul's life. The point of it being God is sovereign. I don't fully understand. It might not make sense in the moment. But God used this to bring a very important relationship together. And this is kind of the unfolding of the story from there. Does God still do that? 
I would say, I don't think so. I'm not inclined to believe that. I d- let me be really clear here. It's not that Saul was filled, like possessed by the Spirit, but there was some sort of oppression happening. In case you are like, where, where do you stand? I don't believe that Christians or followers of Jesus can be filled with the demonic spirits. I believe the Spirit of God dwells in us. And so if the Spirit of God dwells in me, there's room for nothing else. Do I believe that there can be room for oppression or some sort of maybe outside thing happening? Yeah, it seems to be that way. The idea with Saul was he's probably more similar, and there's a lot of comparing to Judas, because at one point in time, Judas actually did great works for God, just like Saul did different works for God. Uh, Judas, as we know, was able to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, but what did Jesus say? Many will say to me on that day, on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And God will say to him, depart from me, I never knew you. Meaning, you might have gifts associated with the Spirit of God even using you, but it does not mean he's in you. Saul, many believe, is probably not necessarily a, a genuine believer or follower of God, more as a man who gave into his flesh. The idea for this, though, is comparing and contrasting, saying here's a man of the flesh versus a man of the spirit coming into his life. I'm using this tormenting spirit to bring this man into Saul's life. So David is now in Saul's life. Now, here's what's interesting. The way David is described is much more than how he was described in the very beginning. He's described as a prudent man of speech, a warrior, a man of valor. Verse 18, like, the way he's described is unbelievable. Here's a worshipful, he worships, he plays instruments, Here's a man who also goes to war, like what, when, what war? Maybe the guy was hyping him up a bit. Maybe this is like speaking prophetically over him. Also, don't forget, there's a, a comment made about Saul that Saul loved having warriors around him. He tried to get the best warriors in the land, so maybe he's trying to like sell David. There's that idea. But David obviously seemed to have some sort of skill, maybe it, whether in battle, as we'll see later in chapter 17, he definitely does. But this idea that there's some sort of skill involved. Here is a worshipful warrior. Now, why this is important to me, David wrote 73 psalms, I believe. David wrote a lot of psalms. David wrote a lot of just praise to God. David had a lot of time staring at sheep in the fields, in the pastures, and going, wow, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. Like, David had a lot of time to write worship, to to just give praise and glory to God. He had a lot of time to, to kind of craft and grow his skill of protecting the sheep. So he's a worshipful warrior king. And this idea to me is beautiful. It's like we need We need both. Jesus is described as coming to do the will of the Father, but he's also described in Revelation 19 as that king of kings who comes back to judge and make war, it says. He's also the warrior king who worships. It's very interesting how David is introduced to us because it's, it's really kind of playing out. Where is this king who's a mighty warrior, who's a worshiper, who's a shepherd, who's a servant? Who is that king? And ultimately we say it's King Jesus. And it's just painting that picture for us clearer and clearer as it goes on. So as we read this, and I want to point this out even. God, yes, David was ordinary. Yes. And God's spirit filled him and he was extraordinary. But David, do you know this? David was busy about stuff. Meaning, when God called Peter, James, John, and Andrew, when God called Moses, when God calls different people in the Bible, they're usually at work. They're usually not lazy bums. <laughs> the reason I'm pointing this out is we gotta say that David had a skill. He grew it. He crafted it. I love how Proverbs uh, describes this. Proverbs 22 says, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. David got really good at what he did. And like, the idea is like, you will stand before kings. Get good at what you do. Watch God kind of bring that to light. Watch God kind of promote you in that way. David got really good. God promoted him to be with King Saul. Now, I just find this interesting. Ordinary guy, yes, but he's not a lazy guy. He was a diligent guy, a vigilant guy. He was a man of war, a man of valor, a man of good speech. All to say God is like, this is all for the making of making who I, who I need to be, who I need him to be. Now, I'm, I'm bringing this up today because of this reason. We do have a better shepherd king who's a mighty warrior, who's a worshiper. We do have a better king, a king of kings, who will come, as we're told in Revelation, he will judge and he'll bring justice. And the idea is this, we, this, this idea of David and who he is and what he is, it should create this longing for a greater king in our hearts. Like, yes, God, I want a king like this. I want a king of the people for the people. And this king is only described in Jesus. And I love this because the way this closes out, this tormenting spirit to Saul, David is just worshiping, and the spirit, this tormenting spirit leaves him. And this idea is introduced right away. Here is a worshiper. And when you worship, God works, and God moves, and God does his best. And as he's worshiping, the spirit departs him. And here is just a simple truth to take away from this. There is power in worship. I know you might know this, but do we really believe this? There is power when people come together and elevate the name Jesus. I do believe God does inhabit the praises of his people. There's something really unique and profound when people elevate Jesus, worship Jesus, sing to Jesus, that we're joining in with heaven right now, that is worshiping Jesus. We're like, hey, let's join in with heaven and sing with them. And there's something 
something incredible, like almost like this gateway to heaven of like this portal, like, yes, God, your temple's there, but your temple's in here. And I get to worship and join in. And here's the idea. This worship obviously changed even his, his counsel, changed everything about Saul for that time. If you've been in those moments where you feel like this is hard, this is difficult, worship. Invite worship in. Give space and room for worship. I believe God does his best in those moments. I wanted to leave this verse to, with you. In Ephesians 5, verse 18, 19, Paul wrote, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. How? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. I want to say this. We go, how can someone be filled with the Spirit? How can we feel like God just removed like, that darkness or that cloud, or that oppression? He says, be filled with the Spirit. How? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in your heart to the Lord. There's something about worship. There's something about spiritual songs and psalms and hymns and making praise in our hearts. There's something about that where God works. And I want to end our time with that. I want to end our time by, can we just do the same thing? Can we say, God, fill us. We want to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I love that. And spiritual songs. We just want to worship. We want to invite the Spirit to move and work. And we want to thank you, God, that we have a king from Bethlehem who was a shepherd to his people, who was anointed and filled by your Spirit, and who was a mighty warrior and a worshiper of the one true God. And his name is Jesus. We want to invite our time to worship him. Can we do that? Yes? Why don't we just pray? The worship team is going to come up, and we're going to close out with just some worship. Father, we just want to say thank you. Thank you that you, you, God, you see us, you see our needs. You see the heart of man. God, that you saw the heart of David, a heart that was just after you. And God, that you gave the people what they needed. And, and even though he's not yet on the throne, he is the king. And Jesus, we see that even though this world, as we're told, is governed by Satan, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, the little, the little G God of this world, as he described that way, we know that Jesus, you're to come back as that mighty warrior that Jesus, you'll come back. You'll be the king. You are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. And you'll come back in that way. And we just want to say thank you. Thank you for how you fulfill this, how you are this. Thank you, Jesus, that you are what we need. And that, God, you see our need today. And God, I just want to ask that for anyone in this room that just feels heavy, overwhelmed, God, that your spirit would fill them as we sing and make melody in our hearts to you, Lord. God, you are worthy. God, you are wonderful. You are beautiful. We are here by you, because of you, and for you. And we just hope we can honor you now, Jesus, in your precious name. Why don't you guys stand and let's just worship.